Hello, I'm Kyle Willoughby. Joining me is Claire White. No. Just kidding, it's James Foey. Hey! <laughs> we are dragons, sexy robots, and adventures in Nerd Manual. We're here to discuss new nerd creations, how they're made, and explore the roots of the characters and the stories. And today we're talking about Ready Player One. Woo! James is excited to be here. He is, I am. I am excited to be he here. He always wanted to talk about video I've games. I've just learned that sometimes Kyle lies with his woos. <laughs> sometimes. I'm not lying. I, am I lying this time? We'll find out at the end. Yeah. Sorry, no spoilers. <laughs> so, Ready Player One is the most recent Spielbergian big screen spectacle based on the book of the same name by Ernest Cline. The movie and book concern Wade Watts, a young boy living in a dystopian future where the world is war-torn and depressing. Wade lives in a stack, which is a bunch of RVs or trailers stacked on top of each other. Um, Wade, like everyone else around him, is poor. He and his fellow citizens spend most of their time and actually normally work in a virtual world known as the Oasis. It's also implied that most of the world's economy functions inside the Oasis, this virtual internet world. The book starts five years after the death of James Halliday, the creator of the Oasis. Holiday arranged a complex Easter egg hunt, the winner of which would inherit his fortune and control over the Oasis. To find the egg, contestants must find three keys that open three gates uh, that leave clues for the next part of the quest. At the start of the book, no keys or gates have been found. The book was published in 2011. The movie was released in March of 2018. Uh, the movie stars Ty Sheridan, Olivia Cook, Lena Waithe, Ben Mendelsohn, Hannah John Kamen, and other people. Yes. T.J. Miller's in there as well. Yes, he is. <laughs> Doing a good job, by the way. Yeah, I liked him in, in it as well. Uh, James is going to be talking to us about VR and the history of VR and if this world of Ready Player One is a possibility in the near future, which Steven Spielberg thinks it is. He's crazy. He also <laughs> used to be in the virtual reality business, so really? yeah, take what he says with a grain of salt. Yeah, he's just trying to up his stock prices, I guess. Um, and I'm going to be talking about Ernest Klein and a little bit about Steven Spielberg, because I feel like we all know Steven Spielberg. <laughs> uh, anyway, James, take it away. Tell me about virtual reality. Well, virtual reality as a term uh, and for being something we popularly say uh, comes like everything else in Ready Player One from the 1980s. That's something I should have mentioned too, actually, is that the book is littered with 1980s culture and pop references and like a kind of a 1980s nerd orgasm, they call it. Yes. Yeah. A nerdgasm a nerd of the 1980s. Yeah. Yeah. So virtual reality is from the same time period. That's when... Uh, we had dreamed enough about it that we actually put a word on it. Uh, and that was, I mean, I think he says that he did this. Uh, Jaron Lanier of VPL, Visual Programming Lab, is the one that I think says he coined the phrase. Other people cited. would say it was just that he was in the media using a term that other people had used before. Gotcha. Um, but he's that's where we first noticed it as a, as a yeah. country. Yeah. Anyway, I'll get back to him later in our little history of virtual reality. Um, but I want to start with its origins in fiction, which are way earlier than I thought they were. Uh, the first mention that I could find of virtual reality in a piece of fiction is 1935's short story, Pygmalion Spectacles, uh, which is by Stanley G. Weinbaum. I've uh, never heard of it. Yeah, well, I'd never heard of him. I'd never heard of this story or any of his others, but this is a guy that was hugely influential for how short his career was. He died of lung cancer uh, when he was in his early 30s. 
but he's someone that you can read all kinds of praise about from Isaac Asimov. Oh, wow. People like that. Um, I mean, his big claim to fame besides this is that he was one of the first science fiction authors to write a uh, round character that was an alien. Oh, so not just a green man you have to sh- the hero has to shoot. And or a rock man or an ant man yeah, or yeah. like that kind of thing. Like that was a person um, in a cool way. He gets a lot of credit for that. But the other thing he gets a lot of credit for is for writing Pygmalion Spectacles in which the main character, Dan Burke, meets an elf who's a professor cool. who has created <laughs> these goggles that in which you can have, quote, a movie that gives one sight and sound. Taste, smell, and touch. You are in the story. You speak to the shadows, and by shadows he means the characters, and they reply. And instead of being on a screen, the story is all about you, and you are in it. That is virtual reality, and that's actually, I mean, that happens in the book. He has to go in and re- and, and act through the movie War Games, part of the book. Yeah, and that that dream of that experience goes all the way back to 1935, and I've always thought of virtual reality as something that is inextricably tied to computers. Yeah. But the dream isn't. We've had that dream from before. We had it with movies about what if I could go inside this movie. But anyway, talking about early VR, I wanted to say that um, I thought of it as, as tied to computers when actually these big visions that uh, really got it going in the early 20th century are about film and being inside film, it actually goes before that. The VR Society of the United Kingdom, they date the beginning of virtual reality back to 19th century 360-degree murals. What? Paintings where you walk into a room and the room has been painted all around with a giant scene usually some historical event, like a battle, so that you can feel like you are fully there. Wow. I mean, yeah, that makes, I see where they're coming with that. That makes, wow, that's really cool. Yeah, to immerse yourself in another place, in another setting and scene. Um, So anyway, that's not as interactive as we would later try to become, but, you know, if you think of it as starting there with photographs, the next step makes sense because that's where we have the stereoscope, where in 1838, also in the 19th century, an English scientist named Charles Wheatstone uh, created, well, he realized that if um, your two eyes were to each see an image, one for each eye, that was similar, right? Like uh, a different pieces of the same whole. They would try to put the things together and it would create the illusion of depth. Yeah. And that's a technology uh, uh, discovery that we've been using ever since in virtual reality. Yeah, that's how they use the uh, those head the thing you put on your head with your phone. They, they cut your screen in half, and that's how they yeah. Achieve and that's what the VR Oculus Rift does as well. We'll get at the end to you know the VR that you could rush out now and buy. Yeah. Um, but that stereoscopic idea that is is the, part like of the basis of that's cool. For, for a lot. Anyway, so that's a widespread thing where you have people uh, looking, trying to immerse themselves three-dimensionally in photos. Moving on to film, we have the sensorama. 
Sensorama. The Sensorama. Now, <laughs> that's... You sound that, like a sideshow man trying to is, sell me something, James. Come is, see the Sensorama. That's exactly what it is. This is, we're talking carnival sideshow style. It's from the 1950s, patented in 1962. We've got smell. We've got the oh, wind no. blowing in your face. We've got vibrations <laughs> and 3D stereoscopic display. Oh, and the vibrations. sound. Oh, the vibrations. <laughs> so I want to talk about... So you sit at this thing, you pull yourself into it, and you're looking through, you know, what are like binoculars, you know, with the the, the two flat uh, discs there that you're looking through. And now you're seeing, watching a film in 3D widescreen. You could be riding a motorcycle, and you're going to feel the wind all over your body. You're riding a convertible, you're going to feel the wind just a little bit around the sides of the windshield. What are you smelling, though? I don't know, but every movie had two <laughs> smells. Two smells two per movie. Smells. And let me tell you the six films, because this gets into the kinds of things we want to do with VR. We have Motorcycle, Dune Buggy, Helicopter, I'm a Coca-Cola Bottle. Very cool. Always wanted to do those things. Right? A Date with Sabina. Definitely wanted that. And Belly Dancer. Still want that. Belly Dancer the (laughs) film, because as long as we're having all the senses, Senses. what if we could have a belly dance? And here's the thing. I think in the 1950s is a much more conservative time. Yeah. And still in the 1950s when they were going with VR, they were like, well, we got to. We got to have belly dancers. (laughs) Got to. Immediately. With vibrations. Yes. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Anyway, moving right along. uh, The first time that it was connected to a computer, that it wasn't just a film thing. It was in the late 60s. It was this awful rig, no offense, guys, called the Sword of Damocles <laughs> by Ivan Sutherland and Bob Spruill. I don't, they're probably not alive, James. I don't think you need to apologize. They're probably to them. not, but they deserve credit for trying. But it was this awful thing that was a, a, this thing that you couldn't even wear comfortably. It was too heavy, too oh, much really? for a person. Yeah. So it had to be rigged up to the like ceiling suspended. and then lowered on to you. Um, but this is the first time you're going in and you're looking at computer graphics. Yeah, vector lines and yeah, and that, yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. stuff. Yeah, um, and I should mention, although that thing was being suspended onto your head, it doesn't get credit as the first head-mounted display. Going back to you know Pygmalion spectacles and what the dream is—this yeah. thing you just wear on your face—and now you're there. Uh, same as in Ready Player One. This wasn't that, but the first head-mounted display was created by the same guy that had created the Sensorama. That was okay. the Telesphere. That was back in 1960. So we're getting there. We're piecing it together. We're becoming uh, one with computers. We're it, getting head-mounted it displays. It seems like with all this work going into it, by now we should be in Ready Player One. You would think, but <laughs> slow going. We'll, we'll get to the booms and busts of virtual reality uh, at the end. Um, in the late 60s, in 1969, we had quote-unquote artificial reality by Myron Krugier. And this is really important because this is the first time that not only are we in a computer world, but we are talking to other people in the computer world. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was a thing, it was a program called Video Place. And, you know, terrible graphics, this is nothing to write home about that way, but hey, how about the fact that in 1969, you're talking to a virtual person who's real, who's miles away from you. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah. That is cool. So then we get to the 80s. We're gonna skip way ahead, And now we're going to actually have the word virtual reality being spoken on television, a giant marketing campaign by Jaron Lanier's company, VPL. And they're going to be selling, in this big marketing campaign, the iPhone. The eye, like eyeball. Yeah, like EYE phone, head-mounted display, 
for nine thousand four hundred dollars. <laughs> And if you want the iPhone HMD X, you can get it for forty nine thousand dollars. Jeez. And uh, data gloves, which will cost you nine thousand dollars. What did they do? Well, um, it would give you that three D display. The data glove um, uses what they have in Ready Player One too. Uh, it's uh, haptic. It's haptic yeah. technology that is enabling Simulates you to feel like you're doing touch. touch. Yeah, you're simulating touch pressure, vibrations. They had a whole suit you could buy I couldn't find a price for. Now, did um, they have Date with Sabina or Belly Dancer? Was that included with your purchase? I'm sure that they didn't because the thing didn't take off as, <laughs> as a success. <laughs> That's just, a surefire way to win. <laughs> yeah, they just had the good sense to follow the path of the Sensorama, which also somehow never made a, a big success. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, but no, if they combine the technology of VPL with the sensibilities of the Sensorama, uh, the sensor, yeah, they, maybe there'd be one in every home. Gosh, but if they only. Didn't do it. So that's I, that's a good segue into talking about the successes and failures of VR as they attempted to sell it to the masses, because this is the first time that we're actually trying to get regular people, not some college student who's helping his professor make this or some carnival yeah. man. Yeah, some <laughs> carnival. <laughs> um, a carny guy. Yeah, make this thing. And uh, so VPL, who created the term virtual reality, not that successful. But at the very same time in the late 80s, Disneyland was coming out with Star Tours, which they made with Industrial Light and Magic, George Lucas's company still at the time, uh, to make a, a, a interactive thing where you would go and feel like you were seeing in Star space, Wars. Yeah, Star Wars. Oh, cool. and seeing, you know, inside the films. And when they saw the technology that was coming out with VPL, uh, they added to their uh, attractions at the amusement park. And for a long time, that is where you had to go if you wanted some cool virtual reality-esque things that yeah. was actually turning a profit yeah. and was actually sticking around. Now, we mentioned that Steven Spielberg got into the VR business. and We did. And maybe he wants to again. But in 1997... He was part of a thing called GameWorks Arcades, uh, and that was with Universal Studios and Sega, um, as well as DreamWorks, SKG. Uh, that only did okay. Okay, yeah. And that was the late 90s. That was right around the time that the VR boom became considered a VR bust. Uh, there was another company, Visions of Realities, VR Arcades, and when that just went right through the floor... <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was considered over. Was it just too expensive for most people to get? Is that part of what was killing all the VR? All well, these the were arcades. They weren't trying to sell you some yeah, forty-nine thousand dollar headset. They Ar were saying, "Come to the arcade, and yeah. this game is better than ever." Arcades are di were dying in the nineties, though. That is a thing. I think that had to be a factor. Yeah, because at, at that time we were playing the best video games ever at home, and they were rivaling the arcade yeah, and on virtual the reality. One and the N sixty four. Yeah, virtual reality probably wasn't enough to oh get people gosh. to go out. Consoles killed virtual reality. <laughs> Maybe a little bit, but we're back, and consoles are helping bring them back. Woo! And that's the end. Of, this is going to end up my segment. Uh, this point is called in my outline, We're Back, Baby. <laughs> okay? so, uh, Gosh, James, I'm a little uncomfortable. All right, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm going I'm to calm down. I'm going <laughs> to calm down. But, uh, you know, 2016, we have IMAX VR. Hey, you want this big theatrical experience at the movies? What if we start adding virtual reality uh, as a part of it? And that uses the HTC Vive 
and also a little bit Star VR, which I haven't heard good things about, so okay. we'll just skip past that. Yeah. HTC Vive, though, is a big player in the home virtual reality market. My cousin has one. There you go. But you can try it out and see what your cousin's enjoying at an IMAX VR uh, location. Now, what I'm really excited about, really excited about, and I want to try so badly, um, <laughs> is Industrial Light and Magic's VR's experience that they partnered with The Void to create called Star Wars Secrets of the Empire. And The Void specializes in what they call hyper-reality, where you can smell, touch, and feel. We're talking about you going into uh, almost like a, a playground of a room, putting on the headset, the backpack, getting your virtual reality gun to hold. But as you look through your um, headset, everything that you see you can touch a representation of it in the room. Yeah, all the surfaces are there. They just look different yes. in, in your your vi through your visor. Yes. So textures are a part of it. The you know you can have those sights and yeah. or you know the smells and the wind. These things yeah. can happen like the sensorama. But I'm moving around in it now. That's pretty cool. Yes, with three dimensional depth uh, as part of the graphics and you know the gorgeous visuals that ILM would put their name on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's what I want to really try. Uh, just so you know, if you're interested in virtual reality in the home, PlayStation VR has sold 2 million units. So if you... It's pretty good. Yeah, or one of 70 million PS4 owners, it's actually not that expensive for you to get home VR. Yeah. Uh, HTC Vive is the primo option for about 600. Facebook's Oculus is the less primo option for 400 that you need a really good gaming computer with um, as yeah. you do the HTC Vive. Uh, and those things are struggling a little bit. What's not struggling is VR with your phone. Those headsets are being sold by the millions and millions, more even than the PlayStation VR. And I think that's really where the penetration into the home is going to come from. Yeah, because they're cheap. They're they're inexpensive and everyone has a phone already. You don't need a console or a gaming computer or any sort of special setup to use those. I think that's it's the ease of use that is really like pushing that. And hope, maybe that'll push us toward a Ready Player One like virtual oasis world one day. That'd be that'd be cool. I'd be down with that. Yeah, with your amazing phone that yeah. everyone's going to own anyway. Yeah. Very cool, James. Thank you for that history of VR. You are just a delightful human being. I'm going to smack talk him later when Claire gets back to work. <laughs> I was going to say, he's only saying this because we're recording. <laughs> no, that's really good, man. That's really good. Thank you. I'm going to go in a slightly less exciting topic and talk about the book. Ugh. With, made of paper and words and uh, and a pretty cool movie made by Can Steven you smell Spielberg. when you read the book? Do you, do you get the you, sense? You can, you can smell when you read a book, but you don't get to smell what you're reading. Oh, I'm less excited. Asking. <laughs> Unfortunately. Uh, but er so I'm going to talk a little bit about Ernest Klein. Ernest Klein was born in Ohio, but he considers himself an Austin native. And Austin is also where Klein became a decorated slam poet which I just found really bizarre and interesting that the author of this book is a slam poet. A, a quote-unquote decorated. decorated slam poet. He won the Austin Poetry Slam Championship in 1998 and in 2001. Wow. And I listened to some of his slam poetry. Not, I mean, I'm not the biggest you know, absorber of slam poetry, but it seemed okay. I don't know. I bet the competition in Austin 
was pretty stiff. Pretty stiff, yeah. yeah. I mean, this was late 90s, early 2000s, but still, probably pretty stiff. Now, Klein originally wanted to be a screenwriter, and he wrote several scripts in the 1990s and, and early 2000s. I've, I've heard them described as scripts. I've also heard them described as fan fictions. A lot of them were sequels to his favorite movies of the 80s, which, you know, this the Ready Player One book, you, you learn a lot about what Klein's... Uh, video game and movie interests were like it's a big part of those books um but it was in 1998 that his script fanboys gained some attention uh and the script was eventually bought by the weinstein company and was made into a movie starring a familiar cast of like those nerd actors i had their names written down but i don't i recognize their faces their names aren't important but it also had a bunch of cameos, like William Shatner was in it. Seth Rogen had a cameo in it. Danny Trejo had a cameo in it. The only name from this movie that went on to, like, bigger things was Kristen Bell. She played the female lead. Um, and the book was, or the movie was kind of a, a road trip. Um, these, these, these guys and this one girl decide they want to break into the Skywalker Ranch and steal a bunch of Star Wars stuff. So it's like they're Star Wars fanboys trying to break into the ranch. I watched some clips of it and a trailer. It was not, I mean, it was one of those early, it was one of those like 2000 teen road trip films. It was fairly misogynistic. And like there's a character trying to use his Jedi powers to tell a woman to like take off her shirt and that sort of thing, but all played for laughs. Um, and it was not a financial or a critical hit. Uh, the movie flopped, making back under one-third of its budget. Yikes. And Klein says that it was this experience that inspired him to try writing a novel instead of screenplays. But wasn't it just its uh, lack of success? He also had a terrible time with the notes that he got from the studio. Exactly. Right? So I wanted to mention that, that, you know, this book or this movie seemed to me pretty misogynistic and, and pretty stupid. And I don't think that that was necessarily what Klein wrote um, because Klein describes the process of fanboys uh, making it to the screen as a soul-crushing experience that I lost control of my characters and my story and it made me rethink if I wanted to be a screenwriter. So I I don't think he meant to make this like stupid road trip teen movie. Um, So Klein tried his hand at a novel where he could have complete control of character and story and, quote, Geek out as much as I want directly with the audience with nothing between me and the reader. Um, And this is all from an interview Klein did with All Time Movies on March 26th of this year, which we'll post. Uh, Ready Player One was largely inspired by Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Klein says that Raoul Dahl was a big inspiration to him, um, which is clear from the premise of the novel, with an eccentric rich guy holding a contest to see who was worthy of inheriting his fortune. Klein was worried that the amount of pop culture references in his book could get him in trouble with lawsuits and figured also because of this that he would never be able to make a film of this book um, because of the amount of companies that would have to be that would, they would have to rent the IPs of. Oh yeah, know? watching the movie you keep thinking up oh, they they took the money, they took the money. Yeah, and it's not even half as much as what's in the book. The book is full of it's he's, it's like you couldn't a pay pop everybody. culture list. Yeah. yeah. Um Uh, But as we know, that's not what happened. Klein's book, before it was even published, mind you, was the subject of a bidding war over who would get to publish it, with Random House ultimately winning. Um, And this was in 2010, a year before the book would be published. Funnily enough, the very next day after Random House won the publishing rights, Warner Brothers purchased the film rights because they saw all these, you know, all these publishers bidding over a book. So they're like, all right, we'll buy the film rights. Um, And once again, this was before the book was fully completed and a year before it was even published. 
Um, so Warner Brothers had Klein write a script for a possible film adaptation. Um, and to help him with his script, he brought in a friend and collaborator, Zach Penn, who has a lot of writing credits to his name, including The Avengers, which is a, you know, it's a big boy movie, and one of my childhood favorites, The Last Action Hero. Did you ever see that, James? I don't think I did. It's, I know I should just to up my uh, my cultural literacy. It is sort of a reflection on parts of the book. So The Last Action Hero stars Arnold Schwarzenegger, and it's about a kid who loves this action series of movies who finds a magic item and gets thrust inside the movie. So it has to do with, like, VR and being inside a film. And that dream from way back in the day. Yeah. And also, I mean, there's a section in Ready Player One, the book, where a character has to act out scenes in, like, an entire movie. So it, it's it's funny that Zach Penn ended up being the one to work on the script with him. So both Penn and Klein were skeptical that this could ever happen. The, invo- the book involved, like I said, way too many different IPs from too many different places. And that is until Steven Spielberg got a hold of the script and the book and decided that he wanted to do it. Um, now, Spielberg says that he liked the book because it was a wonderful marriage between the old and new, where it's a future virtual reality world dystopia but that future world is obsessed with the 80s and 80s pop culture. Like, that's a that's a part of the world in that book. And he said, hey, I can sell nostalgia. <laughs> and he certainly, Steven Spielberg was like, yes, <laughs> I can definitely, I've become nostalgia. <laughs> I can definitely sell it. Um, and Klein and Penn say that Spielberg was really the only person who could have made this film. Um, and that's having helped, I mean, not to mention, so he made a bunch of things in the 80s that are referenced in the book. Um, and he was part of that nostalgia. But also, he made a movie in the past uh, that involved the merger of a bunch of different IPs and a successful movie, that movie being Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which combined Warner Brothers cartoons and Disney cartoons and, and old Hollywood movies and cartoons into one really delightful, fun movie. Yeah. Now, according to Spielberg, getting permission to use all the different characters uh, and settings for Ready Player One... He says, wasn't that hard? <laughs> really? Relative to Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Rel- or? Uh, he just says it wasn't that hard. He said that Disney and Universal were both extremely helpful and cooperative with him. Um, I personally think that the only reason that they were is because it's Steven Spielberg. Right. He's not going to destroy your intellectual property. It's only going to make money. It's only going to make money. You know, he's he's people love him still. He's still so beloved. And also, he wasn't asking to use, like, Han and Leia. But he was asking to use, you know, maybe like stormtroopers or like side things. It wasn't the main the main pieces of a lot of these IPs that were being used. I mean, King Kong is in the movie. I guess that is a main. There piece, are some but, main yeah, pieces, but there yeah, are. It... There are. Um, so because most of the book takes place in a virtual world, most of the movie had to be shot on green screen and in mocap suits. Um, and Spielberg supposedly had 3D goggles that he could put on that would roughly project the setting in which he was directing. Uh, to help him give him more of a frame of reference while directing a scene. Do you know who made those? I think it might have been some of the first people to really do that. The Matrix, right? I was going to say Industrial Light and Magic. Oh, I know they do that. Okay. Yeah. I was reading about how they got the idea of, like, we could make virtual reality because we're using virtual reality to help make Dur- movies. Yeah, to help make movies. Yeah, but maybe they got the idea from somebody else. Yeah, I think uh, I think the uh, – what, 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 who, who directed The Matrix? The, the Wachowski Brothers. The Wachowski Brothers. It's sisters now use something oh. like that in, in directing their movie. Now, the actors didn't really get to use them. They still had to just take directions from Spielberg, which seems hard. You're in, like, a weird skin-tight suit in an empty room pretending that there's 
you know, all this stuff going on around you. Ewan um, McGregor famously had a terrible time with that in uh, the prequels. Oh, did he really? Yeah. I imagine. I imagine. Um, so Ready Player One is sitting at the top of the box office right now with $53 million over opening weekend worldwide. It has a 76% score on Rotten Tomatoes critic score and an 80% audience score. Um, and it's Spielberg's highest rated audience score since 2005's Minority Report. That's crazy to me. Which is I, impressive, I actually. think using characters that you didn't create that other people already love is like performance-enhancing drugs. And I know for people listening to that <laughs> that I might sound like a hypocrite if you know more about me and my career. <laughs> yeah, saying, that's true, but James. He, but he really juiced to the gills on this one. He did, he did. So that's the end of my segment. We're going to jump into opinions now. Um, James, did you like this movie? So you hold on. You didn't finish the book. No. I will, though. I will. I started it. I started it. And so far, I'm having a good time, which I, I've been told by people I trust will change. <laughs> there are also people I trust and respect that love the book, that really enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, that's um, true. And I get why people like the movie. Well, I didn't love the movie. I didn't, or I didn't even like it. I thought, I thought it was bad. But I think my... <laughs> if I were to use a word, the word would was, be... It was bad. I did not enjoy the movie. But I think the reason that I didn't enjoy this movie was because I had read the book first, and the movie is very different from the book. The book is terrible. It is one of the worst things I've ever made myself read front to back. And I'm sorry. I know a lot of people love this book, but I have... A lot I, of people love this I book. I cannot understand why and i'd like to rewatch the movie and just see if the you know because i think i think the movie is okay probably if i watched it without the through without looking at it through the lens of hate that i have for its source material i think i think you would find that here's the thing about ready player one to me the premise is so strong and fun the idea of going into this virtual reality world and being able to accrue all these magical artifacts and weapons and like, hey, there's all these planets. You want to go to something that it seems like there's Street Fighter planets. It seems like there's there's, there's planets for everything. Yeah. And so when you have those kinds of options and you get to imagine going into that kind of world and what you would do in it, I mean, that's, that's so exciting. And it's like all your friends are there. You know, yeah. Chun Li's there. Yeah. For goodness sakes, from Street Fighter, there. You know, I, you know how much we love Overwatch. If you listen to this podcast, yeah, he's the tracers in it. Tracers there. How does that? You know, and like that's like I said, that's kind of cheating because she just appears for a moment. I'm happier. I love Tracer. I love yeah. Overwatch. Well, I feel the same way about the Iron Giant. I love the Iron Giant, and the Iron Giant being a big part of the movie. It's like you're the Iron Giant is doing the heavy lifting of this, not you, because I love the Iron Giant. You didn't have to make some sort of arc for the Iron Giant. You just put it in there, and you're just. Ha I'm as a viewer happy to see the Iron Giant. It's like if you had all your toys as a kid, all your action figures together, and you used to have cross universe battles, yeah. you know, where all of a sudden Godzilla and everything, you know, and King Kong, but also, you know, Dragon Ball Z characters. And Gundam. Gundam. Wing, yeah. Dragon Ball Z is not in it. I would have lost my mind if they were. But, <laughs> <laughs> but there are other anime characters in there. And I realized what the movie was doing for other people when it would finally get to my fandoms, yeah. when it would finally hit the things that resonate for me. I'd be like, oh, this is fun, isn't it? Not great, but isn't it fun? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the see, the book and the movie are really similar in that vein, whereas the book is a nonstop list 
of, of 80s or anime pop culture references. Like there's a lot of anime, there's a lot of arcade references, there's a lot of music references. There's a whole section in this book about one of my favorite bands ever, Rush, where they go to the world of the album 2112, which reading this book, you'd think that I would be like so about it, but no, it's it's just bad. It's just not a good story. I can't believe you didn't like that. I know, you'd think, I should have. I should have read that. You would and go to that planet. I should have read that and given it a C just because, well, <laughs> they talk, you know, they go to the, the 2112 planet and, and he plays a guitar like in the beginning of, you know, the, the Priests of Syrinx. So, and that gives you a passing grade. But it doesn't. This So I have a little list here of problems I had with this book. Oh, here we go. More so than the movie. <laughs> All right, so the the book is lazily written. I'm just gonna. It's lazily Can I, written. You know, just before Kyle does his list, I want to say something <laughs> that my friend and playwright Matt Cox said that I thought was really good. I hope Matt doesn't mind me quoting him on this, or at least paraphrasing. He said that this book is really bad, <laughs> and then he realized that about halfway through it. But then he found out it was the man's first book. And he realized, you know what? It's not his fault his first book became a bestseller. That's not his fault. That's other people's fault. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. That's not his fault. Um, and it is his first book. His, his second book, Armada, just got bought by Universal to be turned into a movie. But Armada was, was very poorly received. Um, and for a, for a lot of the same reasons that I think this book should have been poorly received. So it, had, it has some of the laziest descriptions I've ever heard or seen anywhere, where instead of describing what something looks like, it'll just say, it resembled that scene from this movie in the 80s, which if you've never seen that movie, you have no idea what it looks like. Or like it resembled, you know, it was a, it was a, well, there's one part where he mentions George Lucas's first film, Prisoner 1168 or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I've never seen that movie, but I've seen clips of that movie where he's like, it looks just like that movie. And it's like, okay, well, I understand what that is, but I don't understand how anyone else could understand what that is who hadn't seen this or even heard of it. There is a, a toxic aspect of nerd culture that is tribalist. Yeah, that is not meant to be inclusive. It is meant to keep you out away from my things and the things that I love more than you ever could. Yeah, and I have more status than you because I love them more than you ever yeah. could. That sounds a bit like it's for people that are in his tribe. This is true. And that's another question. I don't know exactly who the book was written for. So another thing in it, there's two Japanese characters that are constantly bowing they are saying that, oh, those bad guys fight without honor. Like, it, they're just caricatures of a Japanese person. It's a long list of just things from the 80s that are, you know, you read this list of, like, video games and movies, and that sort of drives the story. I actually want to read an excerpt from the book that I think just it totally describes what it is and, and my, a lot of my problems with it. So this is actually from Ready Player One, the book. Okay, here it is. Standing on the left side of the runway was my battle-worn X-Wing fighter. Parked on the right side was my DeLorean. Sitting on the runway itself was my most frequently used spacecraft, the Vonnegut. Max had already powered up the engines, and they emitted a low, steady roar that filled the hangar. The Vonnegut was a heavily modified Firefly-class transport vessel modeled after the Serenity in the classic Firefly TV series. The ship had been named the Kaylee when I'd first obtained it, but I'd immediately rechristened it after one of my favorite 20th century novelists. 
Its new name was stenciled on the side of its battered gray hull. I'd looted the Vonnegut from a cadre of Overraptor clansmen who had foolishly attempted to hijack my X-Wing while I was cruising through a large group of worlds in Sector 11 known as the Weedinverse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's the whole book. The whole thing is that listing, like, and I have an X-Wing. I get, and I have... I get almost all of that. And the thing I first thought with when thought when you started that was okay if I'm going to imagine being in a hangar in my virtual reality universe and to the left I have an X-wing. Well, that's pretty sweet. <laughs> that's pretty cool. But then we get into the thing that an X-wing is never described. That yeah, the, yeah. The Vonnegut, a Firefly class ship, ship from Serenity. So from if you watch the show Firefly, you'd know what that is. Right. But if you didn't, too bad for you. Also, the main character, Wade Watts, is a total Mary Sue, or Gary Stew, which is someone who just has no faults and is always ready for, for any situation. So, And it, it happens with no premise. He'll like come to a challenge, and he has to play this old 80s arcade game. And it's like, oh, is he, like, is he nervous about this? And then in, in a sentence, it'll, he'll say, oh, but I had been practicing this game for the past three weeks, so I was perfectly ready. And I was like, man, I've been with you the past three weeks reading this book. You, This game has never been mentioned. <laughs> so you're just perfectly prepared for every situation. Also, terror, the world building is just bad, and it's inconsistent. So there's a scene where he takes a bus from his hometown, and I believe it's Oklahoma, to uh, Columbus, Ohio. And he says, oh, there, had to, there was guards on the bus because of all the looting and kind of the Mad Max-esque landscape there is, exists between cities now. But then later he jumps in, his his friend is driving an RV all around the country, not with armed guards, with no problem, like not worried about looting, like that doesn't feature ever again. Right, how did they cross all that distance safely? Yeah. That's just, a, and that's just one of many examples of why I, I can't believe I even finished this book. I was shocked that I made it all the way through. Wow. I'm not shocked I managed to sit through the movie in the theater. I had a nice time. <laughs> uh, you don't have the chance for those things, and, and you don't have to worry about describing things because you're seeing, seeing them. them. Yeah. And characters can be more compelling because they have living humans acting them for exactly. you. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I, I, I want to give the movie another shot because I, I think I'm too hard on it, but... And just have fun with it because the yeah. premise is so cool. Although if you think this premise is really cool but think all those references to pop culture you might not get doesn't, um, doesn't sound cool, there's an anime called Sword Art Online. It's the same thing. Pretty cool. I would say don't go into the second season on that, but the first season, fantastic. First half of the first season is really good. Oh, wait, you're right. It yeah. turns earlier than that. It's a long series, <laughs> so the first half of the first season is still quite enough to feel like you've yeah. watched a good anime. And ev while I was reading Ready Player One, I kept thinking, like, I wish I was reading Tad Williams' Otherland. Because that is a really great series about being in a virtual world and searching for secrets that you find out, you know, may, things that may exist in this virtual world. And I don't know, I just, I cannot recommend this book to anyone. How about the movie, though? Maybe. I, I have to watch it you again. You know you like T.J. Miller in it. Every I did, like, every there. time I heard his voice, I was like, T.J. Miller. <laughs> Doing a good job. <laughs> you just giving get some me. good lines. Ben Mendelsohn, right? Is that his name? Is that yeah, Ben Mendelsohn, I'm not a, the biggest fan of, but he was fine. Like, the acting was fine. Uh, Olivia Cook, who plays Artemis, I like. You know, I thought she was good. Uh, Hannah John Kamen, who is in an episode of Black Mirror, I like. She plays a kind of an evil villain character. Um, it was very, it did get very Steven Spielberg schmaltzy. 
I thought they handled it well, but everyone, I could just be a sucker. You yeah, know, no, I, I mean, sap. I thought because it wasn't great, it wasn't especially moving, but I thought they hit the notes of just the right amount of sentiment yeah, yeah. that a blockbuster should hit, and that Spielberg has proven over and over yes, again yes. he knows how to hit. Now I expected that going in the schmaltiness, but it's funny because I I went to a screening at a theater, a thirty-five millimeter film screening of Raiders of the Lost Ark with my girlfriend who had never seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. And watching that movie, you know, directed by Steven Spielberg, came out of it. She was like, wow, I can't believe I'd never seen that. That was so good. That's great. And that's 30 years old. And then I went and saw Ready Player One and like, I hated the book. Yeah, but the movie, I was like, oh, man, I don't know. It just doesn't feel the same. (laughs) Oh, it's hard to recapture that. But I... The last thing that I wanted to say about it was that there were first, like I've been saying, the premise of this virtual reality world is just so cool. You're playing with all your toys. Yeah. And there was a moment I don't want to spoil, but for me, there was a moment where an anime character came into play that I got chills because I wished it was me being I able know. to, to I know have exactly what moment that you're talking moment. About. And I got chills all up and down my body, and I went, oh, this is what everyone else is getting from all these other characters. Yeah. Yeah. You gave that to me in that moment. You did a good thing, movie. Yeah. And there's enough of the Spielbergian, you know. The man can make a movie. Just emotional enough action, yeah. fun adventure that, you know, it, it makes it work. Thank you so much for listening. Once again, I'm Kyle Willoughby. And I'm James Foey. He is James Foey, not Claire White. Uh, And we are Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures in Nerd Manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsrapodcast.com, and we would love it if you could leave us a rate and review on iTunes or whatever you listen to podcasts on. We would love it certainly more than I loved this book. You can find the show on Twitter at DSRA Podcast. I can be found on Twitter at Klex303. That's K-L-E-X-303. I can be found at James Foey Jr. That's at James F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R. And you can find Claire at Along With Claire. You can learn more about Ready Player One on our Facebook page. Where we're going to post some of the interviews and resources we used for our segments. I might post something on the history of virtual reality, but I very well may just give you a look at the sensor <laughs> I want, I want, to, I would rather have been involved in a date with Sabina than, than Ready Player One. Our producer is James Foey, and he's also our wonderful guest co-host for today. So thank you so much, James, for Happy to coming be on. Our logo is done by Patty Highland, and our theme is composed by Pete Rowan, who does have a PlayStation VR, which he plays maybe a little too much. Once again, this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures in Nerd Manual. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks. Two weeks.